Welcome back to the Act 2 podcast, a podcast for the real-life working screenwriter. I'm Tasha Hugh. And I am Josh Hallman. And today we are talking with one of the showrunners of Bel Air, the adaptation of one of my favorite shows growing up, Fresh Prince of Bel Air. Rashid Newsom, would you like to introduce yourself? Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, I'm Rashid Newsom. I'm one of the show. I'm a co-showrunner of Bel Air. My writing partner, TJ Brady, who's not here with us today, uh, also uh, writes and uh, runs the show with me. I hope TJ is not mad. And we are going to talk about that. No, he's fine. <laughs> he's fine. He, somebody's actually, he's in the room right now, keeping the, keeping the machine working. Amazing. We'll get him on next time, and then we'll see how your point of view is Our stories match up. On running the show, yeah. <laughs> we always start off where we, because we're a screenwriting podcast, and we all know literally every single writer has a different story of how they got into the business and how they gained success at this job. So um, we kind of always start off with just a very basic pitch of kind of where you're from. Did you go to film school? How did you get into screenwriting as a career? Um, I grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana, where I watched way too much television and watched uh, a lot of a television that I was too young to be watching at the time. So, I mean, like, I mean, I have visions of being like eight years old, sitting next to my mom as we both watched L.A. Law. Yes. Amazing. Not that I was following <laughs> it, but I was just, you know, hanging out, eating popcorn, uh, <laughs> taking it in. And then I went to school at, at Georgetown University. I did not study screenwriting. I have no formal education for doing exactly what I'm doing. I have a, I have a degree in marketing, which comes in handy slight, slightly. Um, I came out to LA after I graduated college. I have been an assistant everywhere. I have a badge from every lot. Um, I used to have a job that isn't even a job anymore. I was a night PA on a show called Rock Me Baby on UPN, which is no longer a network. Uh I have been here uh for 20 years. Um, I moved out. (laughs) Night PA was you, you made copies of the script at night and then you drove around delivering those copies to all the executives and department heads and actors. It was replaced by email and PDF. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. But that used to be my job. That was your first job? Like in the industry? One of my first jobs in the industry, it's how I learned the valley. It's how I learned the highway. I mean, no one knew it, but there were, I mean, every show had a night PA and we would see, Mm. we'd be crisscrossing the night, seeing each other in this network of, that literally was eliminated by email within like five years after I had the job. (laughs) That's incredible. That sounds like a like a like a good TV show if they existed anymore. It was back in the day. I mean, it was really, but it was you learned a lot. I ended up, you know, you'd be waiting for the script to be done. So I read every draft, just because mm. you were almost bored. I mean, this again, you didn't have a smartphone to yeah. like read something else. You learned the hierarchy of all the executives, and you really got a nice view of how shows were made, which was really interesting to me and probably the only advantage I had when I finally became a writer is it wasn't my first time on set. I know a lot of writers have day jobs that don't actually bring them to set. I'd I'd been down there and I had some experience about what goes into making a television show. By the time TJ and I got our first break, I think I'd been here seven years as an assistant for various places. I was the assistant to Nancy Tellum who was president of CBS, second assistant. I was good. And it was five (laughs) o'clock. Our agent calls and says, you know, TJ and you have been hired on to lie to me, a drama on Fox. You start tomorrow. I was supposed to get off work at 630. So I walked in to give Nancy Tellum an hour and a half's notice. 
<laughs> and she came around and gave me a hug and was like, oh. congratulations, I know you wanted Aww. this. It was very sweet. That's the best possible version of that story. Yeah. Oh, she was wonderful. Yeah. yeah. When, when I told my boss that I became a writer, it was not the same. Tell <laughs> us, the tell same us what happened, Tasha. <laughs> <laughs> um, can I ask how you got your agent? How, how you and oh, uh, yeah. TJ? Yeah. Um, TJ and I were, uh, we were writing together. We had some samples. Uh, we went to a script consultant named Jen Grisanti. And she was just starting her business. And she took us on and she really liked our work. And she knew some agents who were looking for clients. And one of them was our agent, uh, James Kern. He's, he's the only agent we've ever had. He's, our, he's mm. been our guy the whole time. And James was really just sort of starting out. Like James is now a partner at UTA, which is sort of which I love bragging about. It's like, I'm rep by a partner. <laughs> at the time, we used to call him. He would answer his own phones. So we were all ki- We were staff writers and he was a newbie agent. And we were all sort of kids together. I love that. And so that that bond has been uh, that that stuck. That stuck. I think we need to go back for a second because you said a script consultant, which yes. is the first time I've heard anyone have that as kind of their first step. Can you talk about w- why you went to a script consultant and what that even means? Well, TJ and I thought we thought we were good. We'd made we made short films together, but we. We tried some TV specs, and it was really like, could these be good enough to enter into competitions? Do you think these could get us anywhere? And really, we were looking for an honest opinion of, is this even worth our time? And I remember, I think it cost like $300 for her to read the script and give us like two passes and notes. And I didn't have $150 to put forward to this. And TJ was like, I will lend you the money. I think we need to do this. And he was right. He he paid for he paid the full three hundred. He had a better job. And what was great is Jen wasn't just saying, "Oh, I think this is good, and you should, you know, enter these competitions." She was like, "I think you guys could get repped." And I happened to know, and it was good timing. She was like, "I happen to know some people, baby agents who are looking for new clients, because that's the trick, right? Like, where finding an agent who wants to take on a staff writer, chances are that's that's a that's a new agent." You know, like, I don't think my agent now represents staff writers, right? Like, just you, he's, he's grown up with us, and his clients have progressed, and that's where he is. So we were at the start of our career, and we were lucky enough to be teamed with someone at the start of their career. And we've, you know, we've all, we've all climbed the ladder together. And at the start, were you focused on television, or were you writing features as well? I met TJ in a writer's group at the Bourgeois Pig where everybody thought they were writing. We all were going to be feature writers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then we started doing short films together and really got along well. And TJ's then-girlfriend, now-wife, was the one who said, well, you like hanging out together. You work together really well. You watch all the same shows. Why not try that? And we, you know, why not? Why not try that? But there was a feeling of... Well, we'll see what other people think of it. I mean, if Jen had been like, I like you too, but I, ugh, this isn't, I don't see it. We probably would have just said, well, I guess we'll just go back to writing our own features and maybe a, a short film here and there. But she really was like, I, she, she really did believe in what we had. And that got us to the next step. Okay. So you're, you're on lie to me. You and TJ yeah. are flourishing. And then... <laughs> I don't know that I don't know that staff writers flourish. You're, <laughs> You're trying to survive. You're trying to contribute. 
Well, I, can I take a step back before that? Because the assistant to staff writer jump is like, is an incredible one, right? And it's, it's the dream for so many, right? It was a dream of mine for many years while I was an assistant. Can we talk a little bit about where you were um, when you got that call? Were you, were you and TJ taking a bunch of meetings? Had you a bunch of samples up at that point? Were you developing with other places? What, what did your career look like? Oh, no. I mean, we, so we, we landed UTA and that took for, it took forever for them to decide. That's what I remember. I think James liked us and the, the agent who was sort of mentoring him or supervising him liked us, but they have to send your stuff to everybody and then they have to vote. It has to be a group thing. And that was taking forever. I just assumed, well, they don't want, I mean, you know, it just went on forever. So like four or six weeks. And then finally they said, I believe like literally it was like Monday. They were like, we're going to take you on as clients. Yay. And then they were like, can you guys go to this interview on Wednesday? It, it, they, they remember they pitched it. They, It'll just be good practice. This is your first interview for anything. Just go be yourselves. We'll get feedback. So walked in, no pressure. Like it was like, they really were like, we don't expect you to get this job. Just go be nice and be people. And then they called the next day and were like, oh, congratulations. You got the job. You start Friday. So we went from being repped to being hired in like a week. Like if I've got that wrong, when you, when you, when you interview TJ, maybe it was a week and a half, but it was really fast. And it was our first job interview. Wow. That's Amazing. crazy. That's almost like the dream in a sense where, because I, I think a lot of times we talk about this when you get your first agent or your first manager, I think the majority of people that I know, at least it just doesn't start happening for you. Like you're just kind of, you think everything's about to change, but nothing changes. And you're like, wow, I still have a lot to do. But it sounds like in your case, it's exactly how you think it goes in your head where you're like, yeah. I'm going to get an agent and then I'm going to get a job. <laughs> yeah. Well, I will tell you, I mean, and this, this came up later when we got on the job. You know, we thought, oh, they've hired us because we're so brilliant and wonderful in the room and they liked us or because they liked our writing and they, they're going to give us a chance. The truth of the matter <laughs> is we wrote a spec that was a Mad Men spec and we did the research to place it in history for real. Like we there was a baseball game. That game actually happened. The score of the game and how that all that worked. The product that it got introduced it, real, it was a real product that Diggin introduced around that time. Like we, and we made clear we'd done all our homework and put it into the script. Lie to Me thought it was going to be a show based on research. It took that premise, the science of telling someone could lie if they were lying or not. It, they took that very seriously. And so they wanted people who were going to do research. Mm. And that's what they were attracted to. They had two researchers as staff writers. They really had no intention of assigning us a script that first year. Mm -hmm. Except the show was so poorly run and such a kind of disaster out the gate that at one point there was no one left to write the next episode except the staff writers in the room. Mm. And wow. that's how we got our first episode is because they, they had at some point no choice but to give it to us. When you wow. say poorly run, you don't have to go into details, but I'm curious. Oh, but I will. <laughs> <laughs> so they thought they would turn these scripts in and be able to turn around. Like if you wrote episode one, you'd be able to turn around and write episode four. Mm. But episode one was so troubled. There were so many notes. There were so many delays. It needed so much work. You weren't free to go off and write episode four. And Josh, you're writing episode two that you thought you'd come around and do five. 
That is not going to happen for you either, because Twos also needs a lot of work and is stuck in Notesville. So suddenly, we need to get those other episodes going, because it's a procedural and the train doesn't stop. Mm -hmm. And so they were like, well, TJ and Rashid are going to write episode five, because someone's got to start it, and there's no other writer available to do the work right now. Oh my gosh. Which is not the vo- which is not a vote of confidence. Yeah, was that a room problem? Do you feel like uh, like where did where did the scripts go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, I mean, multiple places, right? Like, so there was the question of what did the net the studio and network expect the show to be? Was it was it supposed to be like House or was it supposed to be like Bones, if people remember those two shows? Yeah, it was of course. It was toggling between those two paradigms. There was what the actors, particularly Tim Roth, thought he was playing and what he felt he'd been the, his, his character was supposed to be. There was production that would look at a script and go, hey, um, we can't shoot this in eight days. There are too many locations or blah, 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 blah. There was the finance part that said, you have a budget of X, and we've just looked at this episode and you need to cut $300,000 out of it. So the problems weren't just, mm-hmm. we're not happy with this act out. Right now, the script you've given me can't be shot in the days allowed for the budget allowed, which is actually probably a harder problem for writers to deal with because story, you know, if you can fix that, all right, but trying to figure out how to, to preserve the story when you need to cut five scenes and you're not gonna be able to do that climactic shootout on the beach is kind of tougher and takes more time and takes more, you're, you're writing a draft and, or writing an outline and then going to production and saying, does this satisfy your needs? And going to the, but does this, does this get us there? That's more time consuming. And so all of that time was getting burnt up addressing multiple episodes. I mean, I, my, and again, I, this is my first show, so it has a very special place in my heart. But as a learning experience, I mean, nobody, nobody working there in the first season thought it was a well-oiled machine. And first season shows are often trouble. But my favorite call sheet ever, and they got special permission to go over like this, the, the call sheet said, day 12 of 8. <laughs> Amazing. But, like, if you need to shoot four more days to finish the episode, a lot of, you know, you, you know, Bugs Bunny would always say, I knew I took a wrong turn back at Albuquerque. (laughs) You took a wrong turn in Albuquerque. So what did you learn? What are you taking with you based on Lie to Me as a showrunner now? That's a, like, super skip ahead. But I'm curious what big lessons you took from, from that experience as a showrunner. That... There are boundaries to this that have to be respected. If you are writing a sonnet, it's 14 lines. It's always 14 lines. And whatever you think you want to express, whatever your dreams are for this piece, wonderful, great. Bring it in in 14 lines. <laughs> and so I think as a show, when in line of me, there had been a feeling of, well, let's just do what we think is the best story possible and see where it takes us. Well, well, it, well, it takes you to day 12 of eight. Yeah. It mm. takes you to something that we can't shoot. And the game here is to do some great storytelling within the parameters that we have. I mean, 
I love it. I mean, I mean, particularly on broadcast. I know that some some streamers let people you do an episode. It's an hour long, hour five, hour sixteen, whatever. But I actually think there's something magical about telling a story, and you're like, and at 42 minutes, we're done. Yeah. You know, like we closed. Yeah, I agree. We were just having this conversation about like, like 22 minute episode or 22 minute episodes or 30 minute or whatever. There's something just so nice about just it's like comforting you're like in and out we were talking about the bear that's what we were talking about and and uh just like it's just fast and going 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 and and there's something really nice about having those parameters even when you're viewing it i mean well i mean what i love is that you the the it's the roller coaster right Mm -hmm. like the roller coaster you're spinning and you're flipping and you don't and then you go oh we just pulled back into the station we're back where we started and we're safe and the show should feel like anything's possible and it's big and it's running and it's got your heart race and boy we, and when we stop it right where we're supposed to stop it and you didn't feel that coming but that's yeah. i mean we're, we're working you from the start and that is a, that's a craft and it's to be respected and i think a lot of times people come in and it's sort of this feeling of well i'm gonna i'm gonna change the game or i'm gonna do whatever i want or i'm not gonna respect those rules in the long run, I mean, with very few exceptions, we have to play by these rules. I'm su- I, I really want to dive in to Bel Air. I'm like, I'm like sure, antsy yeah. right now, but but I feel like I have to ask. So after Lie to Me, can, can you just kind of talk about the progression to how you got from uh, from Lie to Me to to current day? I, I'm sure there's a lot, but like no, like I love it. People ask you like, oh, what like look, what's the philosophy between what shows you take? We took the best of the available work. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to work. You're trying to rack up experience. You're trying to go to places you think you can add value. TJ and I work well together, but we cover a lot of different bases. You know, uh, he was in the army. He grew up in sort of upstate New York. He's got a wealth of experiences I don't have. I'm black, I'm gay, I grew up in Indianapolis. I mean, so we we found ourselves because maybe one or the other had could lay claim to something going on in the show. I mean, we're on we were on Army Wives, I think, for four seasons. I, I I've I'm not in the army, I was never there, but TJ had that expertise that sort of earned us passage onto that. Wow. Other shows we got on because we'd made good relationships with people and when they got a show, they just called us. And said, would you, are you guys free? Could you, Oh my God, could you come over here? Yeah. And so I think personal relationships, you know, having something to offer to that lended itself to the material, it just one thing led to another. But there was no path. I mean, there was no, I mean, like, I, I, there are people who I understand are very um, calculating and smart and deliberate in their choices. That's, that's not us. Were you actively telling your agents we want to be in a room. We want to be in a room. Once my job is done, please get us meetings because we want to be in another room. I don't think we had to tell. I mean, he would call. I mean, we've had something where our show was ending and he would call like the next day and be like, I can get you a gig. It starts on Monday. And you're like, I, what? But I thought oh, I was wow. going to get a break. In the beginning of our crew of staff writers, I used to, I'd file for unemployment, you know, as, you know, but you have to wait two weeks. You can't work for two weeks. And there were times where I couldn't even file for unemployment because we were, sort of jumping from one thing to the other. Wow. That's amazing. That's, That's a great, great agent. I, I, yeah. I'm sure there's some benefit to obviously all coming up together, you know, and like someone's actually looking out for you because you've been together for so long as opposed to. 
maybe some other client agent relationships that uh, exist. Oh yeah, and and we and we were we are a bargain in that we split a salary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So everybody, it's a two for one deal, and I think that helped a tremendous amount, especially in the beginning. It, I mean, it surely got us onto shows that where people, if it was, if you were, even if you were, if you were one person, mm-hmm. it's hard to beat that. We have these other guys. We have two people doing two this. brains, one one paycheck. Yeah, it's 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 great from a showrunner perspective or a producer perspective. But speaking to to like the pay, did you insist on or did you see consistently a new title bump every time you got a new? Uh, room were you asking for that or being offered it like what did that look like as you were progressing from room to room we tried i mean and and most of the time we got it but like we did we did the first uh season of lie to me i think it was 13 episodes we were staff writers they fired the showrunner brought on another showrunner for season two and they came back and said well if you guys want to return we'll have you back but you'll be your staff writers again so i want to say in the end we ended up because we didn't work on the pilot of lie to me first season so in the end TJ and I did 33 episodes at Staff Writer on a network procedural where we wrote three episodes for free because we were staff writers. Mm -hmm. And so by the time we left there, I mean, like, I'm going to need a title bump. I just did 33 episodes at Staff Writer. And then we got that on Army Wives. And, And then we got, I mean, that was in our contract. We got a bump, I think, every season. And then from there, it's been a pretty, you know consistent bump that's awesome that's definitely something i know a lot of writers fight especially when it is so hard to get another job it's like well okay they're offering me the job but i still have to take staff writer we put a i mean we did put a lot of numbers in i mean like even when we were on army wise one season they did 18 episodes so there were the the numbers of episodes we worked on got pretty high before we got to co-EP, supervising producer. So shifting gears, using that to kind of shift gears to Bel Air specifically, what title were you in the room before you started working on Bel Air? Um, we had been co-EP. We were co-EPs when we were working on Bel Air. We were hired under Bel Air as co-EPs and, and sort of the number two position, which is a position we had served, uh, I think, on The Shy and on Shooter, which I sometimes jokingly refer to as the best job in Hollywood. Uh, <laughs> and... Because you have all this influence and, and none of the ultimate responsibility. Like, you can you can make dinner plans. Um, you can go to the theater. You can, you know, you're just a lot yeah. more free. And oh, you're, you're just looking at the boss and going, oh, good luck, at the, good luck on that meeting. Good luck with that notes call. <laughs> oh, it sounds amazing. <laughs> it's wonderful. I mean, I you know, I've worked for John Wells. And it struck me that when he talked about, like, when you saw nostalgia and love in his eyes, <laughs> he would be talking about working on China Beach. <laughs> Which he was not the showrunner of. Yeah. He was like number two. And that's that was the happy play. You go, oh, yeah, that was great. So um, so anyway, we came on to Bel Air as co-EPs. We were number two. Um, I mean, all this has been reported, so I don't feel like I'm telling anything out of school. Uh, the showrunner was, was let go. That script was not the script we went with. And so TJ and I and Morgan Cooper were tasked with rewriting that pilot under extreme pressure because there was a de- the, the show was going to air on the day of the Super Bowl after the Super Bowl. Yeah. And and that's that. a date you can't push. So, we <laughs> that's, that's had so... been in the room maybe 9 weeks and it was like, "Okay, we're making this change. We need you to to sort of take the reins here." Wow. But you don't get those 9 weeks back. 
So that was, you know, so we started even Bel Air, we were co-EPs. And then, of course, when when uh, that happens, you, you become an EP. So you had broken the story in nine weeks and then the pilot had been written. And then now you're rebreaking everything. It was it was like nine weeks of almost we were we kept trying to break the pilot. Oh wow! I mean, okay. when we got there, the pilot had not been approved. It was not, and then, and then of course it's so serialized, it was hard to move forward. So we had notions of what episodes two and three were going to be, but the pilot kept taking so much work that you couldn't really go forward. So when when we became the showrunners, it became this thing of like, let's just pretend the season's starting now. That's crazy. That must be so difficult because I imagine, yeah, I mean, you have like these iconic characters that you are just flipping and, mm-hmm. and telling in different ways. So, I mean, listen, that must be a lot of pressure. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is, and it isn't. But like, th- I mean, think of it this way. I mean, we were co-EPs. They're in this spot. If it doesn't go well, is, is someone going to blame us? I mean, like, I mean, like, yeah, like you can yeah, yeah. only be the hero. I mean, if it if it goes down, we'll all just go down and never speak of it again. Yeah. <laughs> like, so it, it, you can only go up from where we were at that point. It's so interesting because in watching the show, it's like, well, yeah, the pilot probably wrote itself, and the hard work was after episode one. So it's really interesting. <laughs> to hear that it was the reverse. Where to start those characters? I mean, it is a, it's a, it's, I mean, one of the great things about the show is everybody, you know, is familiar with the Banks family and who those characters are. The tough thing about the show is everybody thinks they know who those characters are. Yeah. And you've got a lot of people, you've got two studios, you've got a network, you've got um, a lot of interested parties who want the show to be great. And they're yeah. all doing everything in their power to do that but at times they're at cross purposes obviously there's a lot of established relationships that were in the fresh prince that's that kind of came over to bel-air like lisa for instance you know like the the will like there and so I, i guess what i'm wondering is at some point are you envisioning where you're just like free and creating completely new bank stories with new characters and bringing in tons and tons of new people to kind of like cousin joe no one ever told talked about right (laughs) yes i guess something like that if that makes sense yeah i think there will be some characters people have never heard of who kind of come onto the canvas spoil but but you're (laughs) i'm just kidding i'm kidding no no but you're but the thing the thing that makes me laugh like the the game is that you are both creating a show for people who are under 30 and weren't alive when the first show debuted and to them they don't they may not know the history and it needs to still work but you're also trying to have this other layer that speaks to people who know the history and you're paying off that knowledge so we're never going to tear ourselves like we're never cutting the cord from the legacy series in that way because it always benefits us to have something that pays homage to the past or put some twist on the past. We get a lot of creative power out of that. Do you guys then, when you start breaking the show and thinking about it that way and paying attention to the original Fresh Prince, do you guys have like cards up on a board that are like, well, you definitely want to hit this beat because that's that was super iconic back then. We're just going to get into it and out of it in a different way, but we definitely want this beat. Do you have a board that's like that in the room? It t- no, it typically happens the other way. Like you're telling a story and you're going, well, wait a minute, is there anything in the canon 
that can help us. So like we have we're we're doing a school story, and we realize that like Rosalind Cash played a character, played a teacher on the show, and our teacher on the show has almost no relationship to Rosalind Cash's character. But if you're gonna name a teacher, like we might as well keep that character name, mm-hmm. and just give us a new interpretation, and and it's a, it's a way of sort of like playing back against the past. So. You break the story, and then you try to see, is there anything organic you can put here? Because our goal was, like, you never we never wanted to wink at the audience. Yeah. Like, I just loved, I mean, everywhere we went the first season, people were like, is, Car- is Carlton going to do the Carlton dance? And I'm like, in That's what? That's my first question. <laughs> in, but I'm like, what is the scenario in which he would organically do that? <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> Was there ever an actual discussion like, all right, guys, listen. Can he do the Carlton dance at any point? Is this Who's got ideas? <laughs> I mean, there, there would be quite, I mean, you'd have notes, meetings, or calls. They're like, well, are you going to, what are we, are we going to do that? Or what are we doing? Yeah, and it was, yeah, yeah. And the thought was like, it shouldn't announce itself. <laughs> right. I, yeah. yeah. I'm excited for how you creatively get into it someday. For whatever it's worth, <laughs> I just want to say it's amazing the way you balance it. Because I can, you're right. Because someone like me who is, is, holds the Fresh Prince near and dear like people like 15 years younger don't care. They're like, what? Like, get, get, stop talking old man. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> like they like Bel Air and it, it, and so, yeah, it's, it's a crazy balance that you guys are, uh, like, are you're juggling it very well in my opinion. So that's, Thank that's, you. you know, Thank you. can, can I ask you what, when you did become the showrunner, were there any like crazy blind spots that you didn't, no ex- like you didn't know existed when you became the showrunner you're like all of a sudden you're like oh my god like i didn't know x y and z this is going to turn into lie to me over here like this is this is not good <laughs> <laughs> um i mean part i mean i think of i think i thought of showrunning as primarily being in charge of the story um and there's a layer of politics that i have not i was not necessarily expecting like i knew there were some but I didn't realize how much that plays into what's going to go on. And I have not been great at it. I think sometimes I'm just like, well, let me get this script out or let me get this thing done. And I've learned as showrunners, you sometimes need to call someone up and walk them through what you're planning to do so that they just feel like they're included, that they feel like they've been heard. And in my brain, I would look at the clock and think, oh, my God, I don't have time for this. Like, I'm, you're going to you'll see the pages tomorrow when like everybody else mm-hmm. that uh, that is not, uh, I would say to anybody that's you should pick up the phone. Yeah, uh, it probably makes life easier down the road. That sounds really important because it does as a as a writer, just that idea of just being heard really is important. Like you just you feel you feel a lot better when people take the time out like that. Yeah, and it's, I mean, there is also, as showrunner, you realize you're, you 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 want to say, okay, well, wait a minute. Do I really have to tend to all this, you know, the, all these egos or all this sort of like the emotional care and feeding of other people? And the answer is yes. <laughs> that, is, that, is, that is, that is also a big part of the job. You were like, you'll be like, I can't believe I was, I remember once, like there was a, there was a discussion about just clothes and the fit of clothes. And I mean, I looked at the clock and I was like, I've been on this call for 45 minutes. 
this can't be possibly what God or the television <laughs> world wants me to do right now. God. But it turns out, I guess it was. I mean, you, you, it, that, those calls are your calls. Yeah. Can you talk about what, like, a typical day for you looks like in the writer's room and running the writer's room? Like, what, what the room looks like? Are we like? in production or, like, now? Let's do both. Both, yeah. Well, now is, I mean, now I can have lunch with people, right? Because the writer's room starts at 10, we work, we go to about 1, there's a break from 1 to 3, and then we're from 3 to 5. And that break, that long lunch is there because, you know, every once in a while I'd like to go to lunch, but also during pre-production, the showrunner needs to help with the line producer and hiring the staff. And so we will uh, have interviews or meetings beginning at 9 a.m. before the room starts at 10 or between 1 and 3. And it ends at 5, and you can have another meeting from 5 to 6. So those breaks are breaks for other people, not really the showrunner, uh, depending on how busy we're, do- we're going. And when we're staffing up, I mean, it's from 9 until 6, 6.30. You're doing that all the time. TJ and I worked on shows where there were some late nights. We try to avoid that as a matter of course. Nobody's making good decisions after like 16 hours at work and you know late into the night, so just go home. Once we start production... It's all over the map. There are times where you do need to be on set, especially like the pilot episode we were on set. One of us was on set almost every minute of the of the shoot. There are other times where you can have one of your writers go down there and cover set and call you if something's happening. But generally speaking, you also just need to show your face. I mean, if everybody else is on, loca- if they're in a difficult location at 5.30 in the morning, TJ and I are gonna be there. If they're working a fratter day, and they're not going to get home until 3 a.m. on Saturday morning. TJ and I are going to be there just so people don't feel like we're out yeah. here busting our butt and that son of a bitch is in bed. So yeah. that that's part of it. Production, that phone can ring at any moment and it's it's just a, an immediate situation that needs an, a quick answer. And you're trying to put that together which is why you want the room to be ahead because your your attention in the room and your ability to focus in the room is absolutely compromised. Can we talk about both? So both of those headspaces that you're in yeah. as a showrunner, they're very different, require very different skills. So in the room, 9 to 6.30, I get that. Are you then prepping after the room is done at 6.30? You have dinner, you're prepping for what's coming tomorrow. Are you stressing about how far you are in the breaking period? Are you looking at your schedule and freaking out? What does your day look like just mentally as you're preparing? I try to freak out on, on work hours. Okay. <laughs> I mean, there's just, there's nothing you can do about it at nine o'clock at night. I mean, I mean, I, you know, I've got a production calendar. We're, we're not as far along as I would like to be. Uh, truth be told, we're, I mean, I can think of one season of television I've ever been on where it went according to plan, start to finish. You know, there's always something. So that's not unexpected. You're concerned, but you've gotta you gotta throw it away. Uh, my husband and I have a, a four year old and a seven year old. They're great because they don't care, right? Mm-hmm. And they come through the door, and you've just they take they if they take you out of the headspace of the show because you've just got to deal with them, yeah. Uh, which is beautiful. My headspace. What I'm trying to do is conserve my energy most of the time on the show. One upside to having had as much experience as TJ and I did before we became showrunners is everything 
is like some version of something I've seen before. So they're not bringing me a problem where I have no frame of reference as to what to do. And every problem I've had, I'm like, well, we're going to, we're going to shoot something like we're going to come to a uh, resolution here. So that also kind of helps. I actually kind of like it when we're in production because you don't have infinite time to sort of just keep going over it and over it and over it. You're almost in you're you're in a, you're almost in a world of more hurt when there's a lot of time before production because everybody could be like, well, I'm I don't know, let's go over that outline again. Could this be better? And they just are scrutinizing every note because they they have the time to. And then once you're in production, it's like this shoots tomorrow and it needs to be on our set and it needs to be two pages long. That that instantly kind of favors the writer because you are the only one who can really work within those parameters. And you kind of, with more leverage, get to say, guys, this is what it's going to be. Yeah. So on set, you have that writing piece to show running, but what else are you doing when you're on set? I know you said you're showing your face to just say like the boss. Oh, you're watching, you're watching performance. You're watching camera. You're making sure, does this look, is this as dynamic as it needs to be? Is this in the, the visual style of our show? Is this performance calibrated to where you'd hoped it would be? I mean, oftentimes I love being surprised. You know, when somebody finds humor in something I didn't think could be funny hmm. or find some depth in something I thought, I was like, oh, I didn't expect that. So I'm always sort of, I encourage that. I, I love that. But also, there, I mean, there, there's bring. I mean, is, is this scarf okay? Will these shoes be all right? Are you happy with the distribution of extras in this scene? So all of that is happening too. Oh, guess what? Uh, we're running late and we think we need to, can you cut a quarter of a page out of the last scene of the day? Like those are the things that are sort of coming at right, you. Right, right. And how does that relationship work when you're not also directing? Because, you know, like Morgan directed the pilot, you're on set. How does that work between you two when those questions start coming? Well, with Morgan, I mean, Morgan as uh, a co-creator of the show and, you know, the person who, who created, who did the trailer that got it all going and he's directing, Morgan is unlike any other director there. So sure. with Morgan, that's going to be more of a like a collaboration. Uh, generally speaking, the director, you'd say, okay, well, I understand that, but I we really want to get it this way or we need to get it that way, and they will be accommodating. Yeah, because interesting, because ultimately the vision of the show is yours, the showrunners, the creators. I would, I mean, I that that's one of the things I would love to, I know... Like when you think of like Shonda Rhimes or Ryan Murphy or Greg Berlanti, like there are these, there there are the showrunners who are such heavyweights and gods that the show reflects their vision and what they say is law. Mm. That is not the experience for ninety some odd percent of showrunners. This show does not just belong to me and TJ. This is, you know, we are in the middle of a collaboration with not just the other writers in the room or the actors or the directors but with the studio execs and the network and it does not exist in most places where if the showrunner says I want to do X and the studio says they want Y the showrunner just gets to do X mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> you're going to do X plus Y that's the dream uh, though right that's what we're building towards <laughs> <laughs> I've thought about this a lot because I think it is the dream, 
but it's so far from the day-to-day -day reality that I think it's really jarring for people when they become showrunners. You thought you were going to be the boss, and in fact, you are the liaison between the show, the studio, and the network. You're the person on the call trying to explain what you all think you're doing with this show, but you don't have carte blanche to do whatever you want. Yeah. It's a very strange job because you are told you are the boss and you behave that way. You need to behave that way in order to get the show moving and running properly. But you absolutely are not the boss <laughs> at the same time. Exactly as you're saying, there are people you need to answer to. And it has been a very interesting sort of experience for, for me to sort of learn that dynamic. And when you talk about politics, it's definitely a thing that you need to learn and understand to kind of hold carefully. Because, yeah, when, for example, when we get a note from Netflix... We do the note from Netflix. <laughs> it's not like this is a suggestion. It's like no, we we need to we need to make this work somehow. And I think there was a time, you know, it's in fairness to why everybody thinks this. There was a time when there were outlets that were like, we don't give notes. We let the creators do whatever. And and whether that was ever true, I don't think it's true now. Like you, uh -huh. I mean, Netflix was supposed to be a place where they were like, oh well, we don't give notes. They give notes. Netflix give notes, and you and you damn well better take them. And. <laughs> And this pretending that that's not the case, I mean, because the, the truth is, I mean, the reason they, they, you know, you're in the job is because, yes, you've got, a, you've got a vision, you've got some ideas of what this show could be. But the real trick is getting everybody else on board. Or even when they're not on board, let's say they come down with a mandate, they say, we want X. You don't get to just do it in a disgruntled, half-ass way. You got to make that sing too. Mm -hmm. The notes you didn't want to take had better shine as bright as the thing you've wanted to do since you got on the job. Yeah. And that is what you're, that's, that's, the, that's the magic of it. That's the trick. Yeah, that's really well said. Can I, can I ask you, do you see a consistent through line? And then I, we'll, we'll start pivoting from this, but like in all different showrunners, is there a quality that all the showrunners you've worked with, yourself included, that do you see something that like all showrunners have, like this ability to kind of not freak out on the job or no uh, no no some of them freak <laughs> out i think i think every showrunner is like its own country it's got its own <laughs> it's got its own ruler its own government some are more dictatorial some are more democratic some showrunners want to hear from the collective some just want you to do what they told you to do mm -hmm. um some are some are king solomon some are mad kings some scream some don't I think there are people who wear better. I think the people who, who 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 do better have a better sense of proportion. They understand this is just television. Mm -hmm. They have lives they want to go home to. So they're not going to sacrifice every moment of, to the show and expect you to do the same. I hope I hope the best showrunners I think have a sense of humor mm -hmm. about the madness of this process and themselves. I mean, this is no way to run a business, but this is how, but it's also show business. This is how it works. Yeah, beautiful. All right, I do have to ask you this before we really start wrapping up. Here is you wrote a book. Yes. How the fuck did you write a book? When did you write a book? <laughs> In all this time, can you just quickly talk about the book for just a, a moment? Yeah. If it, like, yeah. If uh, like I what? wrote a novel called "My Government Means to Kill Me," it comes out on August twenty third. You can get it anywhere. Please pre-order. Pre he asked desperately. It helps. It helps. It helps. Yeah, let's go. Um, but I wrote the novel. I mean, I just point to point out, I wrote the novel before I was a showrunner. So mm -hmm. I wrote it at night. I wrote it early in the morning. I wrote a lot of it during the pandemic. I wrote it because it was 
it was a wonderful escape from my mind from maybe where, where we were at the time during the pandemic. And it's been an absolute delight. I love television because it's collaborative. I love writing novels because you don't have to collaborate with anybody. You get to do whatever you want. Mm. Uh, and it was fun to be able to play in that way. But I think it's, I tell people it's going to be the gayest, sexiest, historical novel of the year. Yes. So. Ever. Ever, yeah. I, I'm promising you this year, but let's let's just, yeah. What's the basic pitch for the book? Let's hear it. Uh, it's about a young gay black man who comes to New York in 1985 and has a political and sexual awakening because he's arrived during the height of the AIDS crisis. He goes on to be one of the founding members of ACT UP. But it's that thing of being a young activist when you are watching the world burn around you, which yeah. maybe people can relate to. Uh, and you're trying to figure out what, if anything, you can do to help. Oh, that sounds like I need to read it. Yeah. <laughs> no, and I need, I need hope. I need, I need that. I need hope. <laughs> Is it hopeful? Please, please. That was please. the thing. I, the big, the big trick was telling people like it's happening during the AIDS crisis, but it's also sexy and it's funny yeah. and it's not going to bum you out. You're going to, yeah. you're going to enjoy this read. As a showrunner currently in the room, I feel like. I just need to talk to you about, just, we need to talk. But, yeah. but I think part of that is really just in the spirit of wrapping up advice to me, but also advice to our listeners who want to become showrunners. What, what would you tell them? If I am a writer, I'm a staff writer, or I am a story editor and I want to become a showrunner one day. What advice do you have for someone in that position? Who's looking at that job from that, that place? Uh, enjoy the ride. I think there is this idea of people trying to rush to be show, uh, to be showrunners, but like I told, I mean, I loved being a co-EP and second in command. I loved having a job when we, I mean, now this is probably a, a good time for us to have this. I couldn't have done this job when we had our children and they were babies. And I'm glad I had the jobs I had when we had those babies hmm. so that I didn't feel torn or, or anything like that. I think you want to learn from as many people, different people as possible. And I think you want to learn from their mistakes, not your own. And I think if people get there too fast, they don't have a lot of experience to draw on to help ground them when things get crazy or hectic. Don't be in a rush. You're already in the league. You know what I mean? You're like, if you're somebody's like, I'm a story editor and they're like obsessing about being a showrunner, they're missing the joy of being a story editor. Mm -hmm. So I really did enjoy, we, we hit every rung on the ladder I enjoyed them all for the perspectives they gave as we went. That is wow. really great advice. Yeah, it's beautiful. The best, the best view may not be from the top of the mountain. And I know that's counterintuitive. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I love your pitch to, to be a number two. I mean, I'll, go down, I'll go down a notch next time to just yeah, see yeah. what that's like. <laughs> Rashid, you're going to be like, you know, this was a good run uh, as a yeah. showrunner, but uh, I think I'm going to take a step back. <laughs> well, I knew, I mean, by the way, when I was on, there was uh, Jim Stanley, who's a great writer and had been a showrunner, but was sort of in his sort of approaching his retirement years. And he joined Army Wise essentially is the number two. Mm -hmm. Just somebody who's going to keep the room going. He didn't, you know, he didn't want that. And I could see in the back half of my career that you yeah. go, you know what? I don't need to be in charge of everything. Yep. As I was actually interviewing writers for my current room, um, I got a lot of submissions from writers who had a lot more experience than I did, who, like, they, they'd show run before. <laughs> they'd show run a lot of things before. And then here we are, you know, you want a co-EP job. And I was like, well, why? And they're like, I'm done. <laughs> like, I'm tired. I need a break. But I love being in the room. And I miss that. Yeah. And being a showrunner didn't allow them that feeling of being in a writer's room. 
because that that there's something relaxing and beautiful about that job <laughs> that you don't have as a showrunner. No, you have to you have to be you, as a showrunner. You have to be concerned about every department, every meeting, every aspect of the show, mm-hmm. and so you don't get to indulge in just like oh, I'm going to hang out in the writers' room. Yeah, you've got to keep the rest of it going. Last question, which is specifically for you and Bel Air and, and, and the beautiful job that you've done on it. What advice do you have for writers who are looking to adapt from pre-existing material the way that you did? Well, I think, you know, you have to have something to say, right? Like, I think when it's just being done to be done and you're just sort of tagging the bases, I think that can feel a little hollow and it won't ring through. There are parts of this story that we're trying to explore. And it's always sort of funny. I always get a little nervous talking about them because it sounds uh, pretentious. Uh, but it it bleeds through. If you actually have something to say, it will bleed through without you having to like bang a drum for the audience to hear. And there were certainly things when we looked at what is what are the expectations of a successful black family then versus now it gave us a lot of 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 material to work with yeah the hardest part is to shed what you know of the ip and bring a whole new version of what that looks like without using the ip as a roadmap i feel like it sounds like you guys just blew it up you 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 put it aside and i mean it's also just sort of taking taking the ip and just indict it a little Mm-hmm. You know, there are, there are parts of it that you absolutely want to take, but there are also parts you go, well, what didn't they get? What did, what could they have done better? Or what were they unable to tackle? I mean, this is a half-hour comedy. So there were a lot of issues that they were not able to tackle 30 years ago that we can. And so you look at it as like, well, wait a minute. This time, if we tell the story, I want to see X, Y, and Z. The tension, the in, I mean, the, what would be the inherent tension between Carlton and Will is a great example of that. Yeah. Yeah, that felt so natural and obvious, by the way. It's like, yeah, of course this would exist. I think I think what's missing is he's not doing the Carlton. Like just <laughs> There's always next season. <laughs> no, uh it's awesome though, but so go right. watch Bel Air on Peacock. It's awesome. Oh my God. It, whether you saw Fresh Prince of Bel Air or you didn't, it clearly, as, as Rashid is saying, it's something totally new. Um, but if you loved Fresh Prince like we did, um, it's also it also feeds into that as well. That love. It's fun to revisit that world and that family. So yeah, it's the go most watched show on Peacock, right? It is. It Congratulations, is. Congratulations, dude. That's yeah. awesome. Thank you. That's awesome. That's All right, so we're gonna wrap up with the quote of the day about adaptations from David Benioff. Every adaptation requires that screenwriter make the difficult choices, and in particular, all the difficult cuts. Please remember to rate and subscribe. Follow us at Act Two Writers for more awesome writing stuff. You can follow me, Tasha, at Story Thursday on Instagram or on Twitter at Tasha 3.0. I'm Josh Hallman on Instagram, Joshua Hallman on Twitter. Rashid, can we find you anywhere? Can anyone find you? Yeah, I can be found yes, <laughs> on Instagram at uh, rashid.newson.author and uh, at Rashid Newson on Twitter. And your book, title again, give it to everyone. My Government Means to Kill Me, a novel coming out August 23rd. Go pre-order now. Awesome. And as always, the Act 2 podcast is a production of Act 2, a network and support group for the everyday working screenwriter. This episode was edited by Paul Lundquist, music by 414 Bag, which you can find on Spotify. Mm -hmm.